When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'll never do that again. Uh, hello. Uh, you're listening to See Here, podcast episode 108. Thank you very much for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, please continue to listen. Don't let that frighten you off. My name is Morris Bishtinsky. I'm sitting here in a very cold art studio here in Melbourne, Australia. We're very grateful here at See Here for being a lad on the Pantheon Podcast Network devoted to music discussion podcasts. And I'm joined, as I always am, by my wonderful friends, Kerry Fristo over in Cape Cod. Hello. And over in Brantford, Ontario, Mr. Tim Merrill. Somebody told me that Australians can dance. Uh, yeah, they were lying. And Especially had- ones called Morris. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us, we have a guest. Now, we've had a lot of directors on the program, but we've never had a set dresser on the program and a props master on the program. And we welcome to the show a man who has who's not only got these things under his belt, but he's also started up a wonderful new podcast called Let's Talk 10. I welcome to the show, Mr. Dan Fisher. Welcome to the program, Dan. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for uh, joining us. Now, we met, as a lot of people tend to meet nowadays, through the Books of Faces. You're on the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Listener Society and had been putting up on that group for a while well, lists, rank them, your favorite flavors of of cereal, your favorite actors from 1975, your favorite of this, your favorite of that. And oh, well, this is interesting. This is unusual. And we got into speaking and decided that you'd come on this program to talk about a music-related film with us. But talk to us about Let's Talk 10. Well, Let's Talk 10 is 
is a list-based podcast. It's true. The reason I got into the Gilbert Gottfried podcast and, and why I'm now into listening to See Here and some of the podcasts you recommended to me is that I love all things pop cultural. I've been a movie nerd. You know, I've worked in film for over 36 years. I started in 1930. <laughs> Let me start. Wow, that I started it. Yeah, I was on The wow. Wizard of Oz. You know, <laughs> I, I, I helped build the, the, the Yellow Brick Road. No, I started in 1986. And since then I've worked steadily. I've been very lucky. I've worked on a lot of really interesting films with a lot of notable directors and and I've learned so much and I've had so much fun. You know, the real reason I do what I do isn't just because I like getting a paycheck and paying for this house, which I do, but I love movies like people worship deities. You know, a movie theater is kind of like my church. And I'll, I'll go down every cliche that you've seen in those Nicole Kidman, you know, magic of the movies things that you see, those commercials. But then from that, you know, I also grew up in the 70s during that time when Saturday Night Fever first came out. I was a TV kid because I grew up in a little town in West Virginia, population 800, that had no movie theater, had no stoplights. It was a good half hour drive to the nearest movie theater. And then pop music, too, was sort of my window into the, what the rest of the world was like, you know, whether it was R&B and soul or disco or, or, or punk rock, all of the stuff that used to come in on 1970s Top 40 radio at that time. So it's all been in my head ever since. And that's what connected me to The Gilbert Show, which focused a lot on keeping the preservation of pop cultural history of some sort through interviews with Adam West or David McCallum or Jimmy web. That's the stuff I love. And especially once Gilbert passed away, I had been doing these regular visual features on Facebook called Rankum, where I just come up with a category of something like songs that mention doctors. So it's like Kisses, Dr. Love, or you know, whatever, a doctor's orders, the disco song. And I would do this every week. I think I was doing it three times a week at first. And I'm like, well, no, I got to focus on my job too. But I was doing these like once or twice a week where I just put these on and, and and people started like following them and looking, kind of looking forward to them. I think it was like a nice coffee break thing to reconsider, you know, oh yeah, I forgot about that song or yeah, I like that movie. I hadn't watched it in years. So that kind of became something of my mission was to carry the flame of, of pop culture. And especially in this age of instant access to anything, pretty much, you know, every movie ever made, if you're crafty enough, you can find. I mean, I know there are some things that don't stream, but you know, we are in an age where there's so much available, you know, that you can watch on the phone, in your pocket. You can listen to any song. You can go to YouTube and it's like, I remember a, a serial commercial from 1971 and it's there. And I like to kind of remind people that it's there because pop culture is a very disposable culture. You know, we tend to just consume and move on, especially now the way movies are released. If a movie doesn't make a hundred million in its opening weekend, it'll be gone by week three. So that's what uh, Let's Talk 10 is partly about, is carrying on that legacy that Frank and Gill's show always did, and, and many others too, of just trying to keep my love for these things alive through the words I spew. So Let's Talk 10 is really a celebration of all things pop cultural, and not just so much like this is the best and this is why it's the best. I think there are a number of podcasts that do that, and a lot of them are really great. But for me, it's about the feelings and the memories that a certain movie or a certain 
certain song just bring up. And if you couldn't tell already, I could go on for hours about anything if you just give me a song cue or you mention a movie that I just happens to resonate with me. I'll go on and on and on and on. Funny, because you mentioned about Frank and Gilbert. You know, like the world wouldn't know about the wonders of Danny Thomas if it wasn't for Gilbert Godfrey. Gilbert Godfrey brought back Glass Coffee Table. At this point, because we do have a film to discuss, we're here, in case you hadn't read the little blurb on your podcast application of choice, we're here to talk about a tiny film that became a big film, 1977's film directed by John Badham. One thing you may have heard of called Saturday Night Fever. It's not often that we do the big tentpole films, but once in a while we do, and we've got Dan to thank for that. So what we're going to do at this point is play the trailer and then we'll come back. And I promise I won't be doing any more Bee Gees imitations for the rest of the show. I might sing like Casey of Casey and the Sunshine Band, though. I'm not making any promises. But <laughs> anyway, we'll be back. You're listening to See Here, episode 108. <laughs> John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. She can dance, you know that? She's got the wrong partner, of course, but she, she can dance. Okay, listen. I like it. We could dance together. That's it. We could just dance together and uh, nothing more, nothing Pictures. 
the original soundtrack music of Saturday Night Fever, featuring new songs written and performed by the Bee Gees, including the number one hit single, How Deep Is Your Love, and the hit singles, Night Fever, and Staying Alive, a sensational two-record set available on RSO Records and Tapes. Back from break, Morris here, Tim over there, Terry very close to him over there, and Dan also in that little corner of North America, somewhere up there. Uh, they're all very close. I'm up the ass end of the world. <laughs> and we're here to talk about 1977's Saturday Night Fever, directed by John Badham, supposed to have been directed by John Alvidson. He got sacked, and I'm sure that uh, Dan will have some interesting facts about that. Written by Norman Wexler, based on a short story by one Nick Con called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. The film stars John Travolta. I actually sort of wasn't sure if this was his first film, but I was pretty sure that Carrie was earlier oh, than this one, wasn't actually, it? Actually, I think it was Devil's Reign was the first Devil's Reign, I think, was his first. I think you're right. The first yeah. one that I've seen him in was Carrie. But, of course, growing up, I just remember, what? What's it? No, I'm not going to do the Barbarino song. Uh, John Travolta, Karen Lynn Gormley, Donna Pescow, and Barry Miller. The soundtrack has some songs by The Brothers Gibb, Casey and the Sunshine Band, Cool and the Gang, Ralph McDonald, many others, including one of my favorite film composers, David Shire, but we'll come to the soundtrack. The IMDb description, anxious about his future after high school, a 19-year-old Italian-American from Brooklyn tries to escape the harsh reality of his bleak family life by dominating the dance floor at the local disco. Later on in the show, I might change a couple of words, but I'm going to use pretty much that same description about another film that came a year later, and I bet Tim will guess it, but we'll come to that. Just like a number of other films that we've discussed on the show, Saturday Night Fever is less of a music film, but more a film about a time and a culture where music was incredibly important. And ironically, the film ended up feeding the love of the music. I think you know, disco music, and once again, I'll let you historians sort of espouse on that. But I think uh, disco was more of an underground thing and maybe had run its course, at least as far as the mainstream had gone. But this went and rekindled it or blew it up, as it were. So I want to go around the virtual table and find out where you stood with disco music and where you started off with this film. So Tim, we'll start off with you. Where were you when Saturday Night Fever came out? Did any of the music appeal to you? Did you see the film at the time? I remember when this came out, and it was, what was the label? Uh, not uh, Bigwood's label. Not. RSO. RSO. I was about to argue. No, it was RSO. But I remember how big this was when it blew up. And I also remember, I think it was a stadium. And David, you might be able to help me out on this. In Cincinnati, there was a guy where he had all the disco records they set on fire. Chicago, I thought. They did it at Comiskey Park. 
Yeah, they, they and that guy was a radio DJ or something, and he had that little people set up, and it just turned into chaos. Like I remember the disco, there was no kind of middle ground with disco. That was the scene between games of a doubleheader at Comiskey Park last night as White Sox owner Bill Veck went a promotion too far. It was billed as Disco Demolition Night. A rock disc jockey came up with the idea of blowing up disco records as part of his self-serving campaign against disco. And the White Sox went along by admitting anybody bringing a disco record for 98 cents. You try something, you don't know how it's going to end up necessarily. You think it's a good idea, uh, and it just got out of hand. He, He was more popular, had more pulling power than we felt was possible. Uh, I suppose I should have anticipated this, but nothing has ever given any indication of it. We had rock concerts in which we didn't have this many people. 50,000 people got in before the White Sox called upon Chicago police to help close the gates. Didn't take long for the realization to set in that rock fans, under the influence of beer and drugs and armed with disco records they had been invited to destroy, don't mix with baseball. What I remember as a kid, it was either you were in the, you know, Olivia Newton-John or Xanadu and the Bee Gees, or you decided it was all just a puddle of shit. I mean, like, it was, there was no, no middle ground to it. But I remember, too, that it was a phenomenon that the film, when it came out, like, there were actually TV shows about how to disco dance after the film came out. And there was some guy named Denny Terrio, I remember, who actually had a show that was actually inside an airplane. It's like a 747 airplane or something that they had gutted out and turned it into a disco floor with like a lit floor inside the airplane. And it was a TV show where people were disco dancing for half an hour inside this airplane. But I just remember it from being a kid, you know. Because Denny Terrio was famous as the guy who taught John Travolta how to dance. Right. But again, this was a cultural phenomenon. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I want to say that the 70s did this incredible thing with film, where they made so many films. I mean, like, if you really look at, like, for example, Smokey and the Bandit, what's the plot? Burt Reynolds has got a wicked car. He's got Sally Field. He's got Jerry Reed. But where's the plot? There's no plot. It's just, you know, them going from... He's got to get the Coors beer. It, no, yeah, he's, he's got to get the Coors, Coors beer. to the East exactly Coast. Yeah. But I'm just saying, it's just, you know, but I'm saying they got so much mileage out of this wafer-thin part of the plot. And it's the same thing with Saturday Night Fever. And it's the same thing with the Blues Brothers. It's the same thing with a lot of these big hits of the 70s, where they they got so much mileage out of so little. And yet, everybody used to sit there and mock a lot of the the B-movies and films that came out of the 50s, like Rock Around the Clock, a lot of the stuff that came out of the 50s, and everybody said, all these films are just about nothing. But yet, the 70s, in fact, in a way, did the same thing. My opinion on that is that the 70s films and into the 80s had a lot more emphasis on character and really getting into the intimate details of the lives of people. And nowadays, movies are much more about plot, 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 plot. You know, we got to get to the thing to get the thing and you don't really know that much about a lot of these heroes that you're supposed to be cheering you know the bare bones oh he's married and the wife is begging him not to go but he's got to go because he's the hero that's about it for the character's wife i'm not talking about all of the 70s i'm just saying that a lot of the big hits of the 70s in my opinion growing up when i saw them the first time i thought these films were all amazing and i'm not saying they're not now but now so many years later looking back i'm just going wow man like they 
were able to get so much mileage out of like something that there's not a lot there to begin with, you know? I'd have to say that they're similar in a way to the British kitchen sink films where you're actually, you know, you're learning about a particular microcosm of people or something, you know? So this is a, a neighborhood somewhere. And in fact, that's kind of what we're learning about with Saturday Night Fever. I mean, it's it's the Brooklyn of the 70s. It's the Italian-American enclave within Brooklyn. It's not even, you know, all of Brooklyn because Brooklyn is a melting pot and was then. But it's just it's the Italian area. And well, Bushwick now is a little more yuppie because that's where my daughter lives. Ah. <laughs> but I mean, she's not I mean, yuppie. Like... She's she's young. But then, and you see, the only people he knew were of that same ilk. You know, like he's never met anyone who lived somewhere else, who who had a different yeah. experience. It's interesting when he first starts talking to Stephanie and she mentions, you know, like Eric Clapton and he doesn't know who that is. <laughs> and you're like, where the hell have you been, son? <laughs> well, that's one of but the I, great funny moments in that movie is when she talks about Laurence Olivier and he's trying really hard to, 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 and she goes, you know, the guy in the camera commercials. And he goes, oh, oh, he's good. He's good. And yeah. so do you think you can get me a discount on a camera? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's that's real human comedy. You get no idea how it changes, you know, just right over there, right across the river. Everything is different, completely different. It's beautiful, just beautiful. People are beautiful, offices are beautiful, secretaries, you know, they all shop at uh, Bonwood Taylor. Oh, yeah. And, like, the lunch hours are beautiful, too. Like, you know, they'll give you, like, uh, give you two hours for lunch and do something that's related. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, we've seen Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah, Romeo and Juliet, yeah. I read that in high school. That's, uh, that's Shakespeare, right? No, it's uh, Zeffirelli, the director of the movie. Well, the movie, film. Uh, Carrie, what do you recall of the film at that time? At that time, it was a film that I was not allowed to see <laughs> because I, I don't know if it was rated R or yeah, it was. So I, I wasn't allowed to see it at the time. I remember, I remember it was a really big deal, but I also remember the whole Disco Sucks thing. And I was definitely, I, I'm going to tell you, I was on the Disco Sucks bandwagon at the time. <laughs> I, I had listened to Bee Gees before because my dad had the album Cucumber Castle, which was, you know, an old. Bee Gees one when they were you know uh, doing uh, all these kind of really cool tunes I never asked for any time from you baby I never asked for any last You only hurt the one you love the most baby and that's what I knew of the Bee Gees. And then I started hearing them and I was like, is that the same group? That's so interesting. You know, I mean, obviously they're still harmonizing and they still have the really good voices together and all this kind of stuff. But it was a bit of a departure from what they had done earlier. I started a joke and all those kind of things. Yeah, I, I was firmly in the Disco Sucks camp at the time because I was very much a, um, you know, into rock and it was not cool, you know, to like disco. And I'm telling that's where I was at the time. I must say, though, that even though I didn't listen to pop radio at the time, I because I'm from the Boston area, so I listened to BCN and BCN is like the inventor of, of album rock kind of in, you know, in the 60s, they started uh, this like 
WBCN is a really famous radio station in the United States, in Boston. And they kind of did a lot of really neat stuff where they would play Diana Ross and then U2 and then Bruce Springsteen and then Cream and then, you know, and it was just a really neat kind of stuff. But that's what I grew up listening to, that kind of radio and that kind of music. And then jazz from my dad and stuff. Even not listening to the specific type of radio that would play the Bee Gees, I can tell you every word of those songs. Every word. They were on the radio every five seconds. I can sing along with every part of them. I remember the one with Samantha sang when the the brother, the younger brother, came out and did was it Andy? Andy. Andy. I was going to say Sean, but that's Cassidy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I didn't see the film for years. So I probably didn't see it until the 80s, like well into the 80s for the first time and probably on cable. And I must say, it's a really impressive song. I mean, Travolta has really got a fantastic presence. He really does. You've got to admit, whatever you think of him as an actor, or he has a terrific presence. And I actually think his acting in this is quite impressive. I thought he did a really nice job. I'd say more than that. Frankly, I think yeah. he was, you know, he was nominated for the Oscar. He lost out to Richard Dreyfus for The Goodbye Girl that year. Uh, Which is a fine film. It is good. Right. I like that it's one. It's a fine film. It's a mannered, you know, Dreyfus is his mannered self, but it was new at that time. So I guess that's what made it unique. A lot of people thought Richard Burton was going to win that year for Equus, which Equus, is yeah. not a great movie version of a very interesting play. It's a terrific play. I, I didn't like the film. It was too muddy looking, but it's a brilliant play. And I remember like my English teacher in junior high school, she was, you know, young, like a lot of my teachers now I realize were in their 20s. They seemed rather old to me at the time, but, you know, she's in her late 20s. And I remember her coming in at some point and saying, like, John Travolta is going to win the Oscar for Saturday Night Fever. It's the best performance I've ever seen. Now, you know, this has nothing to do with teaching junior high school English, but she just wanted to share that with us. And I, you know what? I agree. I think Travolta was robbed. I think that there was not a more dynamic, charismatic and really kind of lived in performance where it wasn't really acting acting it wasn't like Burton you know with the you know oh this sorry path in life or you know any of that kind of stuff (laughs) it was just him reacting to what people were giving him like kind of like James Dean or Brando is just sort of give me something and I'll give you something back you know I'll be a raw nerve on screen only even better unlike those guys I can dance I'm I'm not only sexy and and sensitive I'm a great dancer he's not a um, versatile actor He's no Robert Duvall. You know, he'll never play Hamlet. He'll never play Willie Loman, I don't think. But in a certain kind of role, especially if it's kind of a lunk-headed, charming guy, you know, like Danny Zuko in Greece or later on Pulp Fiction, who is better, really, than John Travolta? You know, a film that he's really amazing in, and I think it's his best performance ever. This is just my opinion entirely, but blow up. Oh, oh he's right. good in yeah, that. He's good in that. Primary Colors, too, with Mike Nichols, where he did sort of a, a Bill Clinton. He was really good in that. And he's done some comedy movies that shows he, he's got some chops. But yeah. again, certain roles don't put him in. But, you know, that could be said for, I'd say, probably 90% of all actors. Let me ask you this, Dan. Do you think that Tony Minero is Vinnie Barbarino after he's left school? Barbarino! Barbarino, yeah, yeah. 
No, no. I mean, I can say that now because I, I lived in New York City for 12 years. I never lived in Brooklyn. And I certainly didn't live in 1970s Bushwick. But I do see to this day a lot of Tony Monero's. Even now, Tony Monero is still among us all the time. I mean, it's no longer disco and it's no longer white suits, but Tony Monero definitely exists among us all over the place. You know, you see him at MAGA rallies. You know, it's that thing of wanting to sort of be cool and be macho and also searching. Tony Monero is also a guy who may be these things, but unlike his friends, he isn't sure if that's what he wants to do with his whole life. He, thanks to Stephanie, he starts to realize, oh, there's something more than this four block radius that ends at the 2001 disco. Yeah, I'm a hot dancer, but I can't do that forever. He even says that in the movie, you know, I'm a good dancer, but I can't do this all my life. I'm looking for something else. And Stephanie is really the port entry for him to come to that realization. And I'm sure we're going to talk about things like misogyny and racism and all kinds of bad male behavior, toxic male behavior, you know, on this podcast. But it's really through Stephanie that he learns that maybe there could be more to him than that. And unfortunately for us, you know, the sequel film Staying Alive was like, well, yeah, he'll star in this awful Broadway musical. It's like, no, 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 that's not what he'll do. To this day, I haven't watched Staying Alive. I had heard it was pretty terrible and I thought, I don't need to watch it. One film I wanted to watch, which I'm pretty sure that the guys on The Gentleman's Guide discussed a few years ago, I still haven't got around to seeing it, it's a film from Chile called Tony Monero about a guy who's obsessed with Saturday Night Fever. Have you seen that, Tim? Yeah, I've heard of it. I always wanted to see it as well, but I never got a chance. Yeah, I was having to watch it for this. Just to touch before, I think, Kerry, you were saying that you weren't allowed to see the film because it had an R rating, at least in America. R meant that if you had a parent who was willing to take you, you could. Here, the R rating was a hard R, but I remember about, I don't know, a year or so after the film originally got released and Paramount thought, well, we haven't recouped enough money from the hundreds of millions of dollars that we've made. Let's put out what we called at the time nrc but it was basically a pg version of the film oh yeah yeah. because we want everyone to see john travolta's performance saturday night fever is now rated pg i went to see that at the time because this big phenomenon okay what's this all about and at the time, I remember thinking, this is boring. I was too young to really understand I, what the themes behind the film were. But I do believe that some people behind the making of the film actually say, no, that PG version's shit. It's really not very, very good. I mean, and I was watching a documentary over the last couple of weeks on YouTube, a 90-minute documentary about the making of the film. And they were saying that John Badham had the foresight to rather than just overdubbing the swearing that was in a lot of the film, there's a lot of naughty, naughty language across this film. He said, okay, we've just shot this scene. Let's shoot this scene again. But John, don't say fuck. In the film business, we call that the airlines version or the airplane version. Oh, I knew you'd piss on it. Go on, just piss on it, right? A race is like you're good. You know what I mean? You know how many times somebody told me I was good in my life? Two. Two, twice, two fucking times. This race today and dance and dance at the disco. You sure as fuck never did. I knew it. Go on, knock it. Just knock it, all right? A race is like you're good, you know? I mean, how many times in my life somebody told me I was good? Two, twice, two times. A race today and, and dance and dance at the discotheque. 
He sure as hell never did. He reshoots all these scenes and they put it in his PG version of the film. And it's like about eight minutes shorter through all the cutting of swearing, the reshooting of certain things, the taking out of the rape. I'm watching this as whatever, however old I was, you know, 14 years old, thinking, I don't get this. What's so great about this film? If if you're there for the music, it was nothing much. It was If you were there to see what happens to this guy who's a leader of a gang, it was dull. It wasn't until later on in the 80s where I saw it on VHS, the full R-rated version. I thought, oh, okay, now I'm getting it. But I would have liked to have rewatched the PG version in prep for this just to make a comparison. And that's nowhere to be found. The trailer for the PG version is on YouTube and it is hysterical. For all of you out there who want to share in Saturday Night Fever, here's the PG version. And, you know, really short of just saying because Paramount wanted to make some more Brasso. My initial impression was this was not any good, and but I'd like to know whether it's just because at my age, on the other side of the world, I couldn't identify with anything that the film was talking about or really whether because to show it as a tough dark bleak film it needed that language and it needed the scenes that they took out i can't remember for sure but i'm presuming that the scene towards the back end of the film with annette being raped by old tony's gang i'm presuming that that was not even a thing in the pg version if i may interject with some personal history and perspective you know i was 13 in 1977 and so saturday night fever came out in december of 77 when i was 13 but movies back then you know this was long this was before the age of the multiplex and a successful movie could stick around in one theater for a year. You know, Star Wars did that. I believe E.T. would do that later on. So even though it came out in December, when the spring and the summer came along, I was 14, 78, and it showed up at our drive-in. And I had an older sister, five years older than me, and she had seen it. And I don't think my folks had seen it, but my sister was like, he can see it. He's see it's it's not that big a deal. So she took me and I did see the R-rated version at the drive-in. And unlike you guys, I guess I'm the only one here that can will defend disco. You know, I was a rock and roll kid, but I also really, I, my hometown didn't have black people, you know, not for a 50 mile radius. Could you see a non-white face? And I liked a lot of black culture. I liked a lot of the music. I liked a lot of the humor, you know, Sanford and Son or what have you. So early on, I was into not only Motown and, and, and the R&B of the late 60s, but that music evolved in the 70s into a number of different branches. And it's very important if you want to understand what disco really was and how it came to be versus sort of the narrative that has formed ever since, like, oh, Disco Demolition Night killed disco. It really didn't. It had an effect, I would say. But there were certainly disco hits that went on long after that went to number one after Disco Demolition Night, like Funky Town by Lip Sync. I believe that was 1980 or 81. But, you know, going back to my history with the music, in the 1960s, 70s, R&B and hip hop started to evolve into sort of more of like what they call the Philly sound. I don't know if you're familiar with that. The Philly sound was already around for a, a few years though already. That wasn't unique to In disco. the 70s, it really hit big though. I mean, you're talking spinners, you're talking Barry White, you're talking the sound well, of I Philadelphia. I liked all that stuff too, but I wasn't right, crazy just... about what it, the disco that it became at the time. Like now I can listen to it and I think it's fine, you know, but at the time yeah. it was like this well, whole stigma, you know, or I'm not going to listen to 
Francisco. I'm too cool. I know, know? because listen, when you're a teenager (laughs) and you're a young adult, it's very important to pick up teens. And you think at the time that it really matters. You know, your friends will tell you disco sucks or Led Zeppelin rules. And these and and later on with punk, you know, I ran into that with with a lot. And I got into punk after disco. But it wasn't like I abandoned disco for punk. I just kept adding pieces to it all. Right. But then I would meet punks, real life punks when I went to college. And I liked, you know, I liked a lot of the stuff. I mean, I, I liked some of the hardcore stuff, but they'd be like, oh, Motown, that sucks. I'm like, no, it doesn't, dude. It doesn't suck. But, you know, if you again, going back to what disco became and how it evolved, you have to go to Philly, but you also have to go to a, a number of other things. Funk, you know, George Clinton, you know, Parliament Funkadelic is bringing in that steady boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. And then the inclusion of strings. I mean, that goes all the way back to the drifters in the 1960s, you know, save the last dance for me, things like that. So it was like, let's, and the Beatles, of course, use strings in their stuff. So the producers of disco, like Giorgio, you know, like Giorgio Moroder, who, who, you know, used a lot of synthesizers, which was also being, becoming a big thing. You know, all of this was just a big stew. It was just like somebody coming along and throwing in elements. And you also can't underestimate the importance of, you know, not only black culture, to what disco would become both as music and as a cultural phenomenon. But you also have to look at gay culture and how that contributed to the disco scene and what a disco, a physical discotheque became. It went from being that thing you saw on Hard Day's Night where they're doing, you know, they're jumping up and down to rock records. It became more about, no, you can't dance to, you know, this song. I want music I can dance to. And it was really the black culture and it was it was also the gay culture that propelled this movement forward. And Honest to God, I'm going to say it, and I'm not accusing you or anybody else of it, either now or at the time, but there was definitely an undercurrent of homophobia and racism behind the Disco Sucks movement. It was white music rules. You know, it's Bob Seger, it's Journey, it's Styx, it's Kiss. It's three white guys and a drum and a guitar. And that was rock and that was music and anything else was crap. I didn't give lip service to that. I don't mean to give myself cool points or pats on the back. I just simply resisted it because I I just liked it. I did like some of the cheesy disco stuff because it had a sense of humor. Village people. I mean, we all knew they were gay, but they were funny. And I liked funny music too. You know, I like novelty songs like, uh, you know, like Cheech and Chong stuff or whatever. I liked anything that could make me laugh. And the village people kind of made me laugh. And then you had Rick. The disco does. Disco Oh no, no! I knew you. I knew somebody would go there. If I can intervene for a second, two interesting things. One is if you look at stuff like uh, T Rex in this week, that really led into disco. I mean, what, what, you know, Mark, Mark, well, no, but Mark Bolin was doing dance up before disco that kind of led into, and a lot of what the suite was doing kind of that really dancey, some of it led into the, and the other thing I was about to say was like, you brought up Carl Douglas with Kungsi Fighting. That was another one, you know, all, all three of them I like. But the other interesting thing is if it wasn't for disco, there wouldn't have been hip hop. Because the way I see it. Oh, funk too. Yeah, exactly. What I'm talking about specifically is chic. With, you know, that whole bass, that you know, like that Sugar Hill Gang, man. I mean, that's, of that's it, right? It's so important. I mean, as much as people were thumbing their nose at disco, there was so much that came out of that. And so many producers and so many people that were able to get, I mean, like, you look at the production values for somebody like Donna Summer at that time. Holy shit. I mean, it was that was just, Giorgio Moroder. Yeah. Right. But I'm just saying that before that, 
you didn't have that master production in a lot of ways that disco kind of it kind of ramped it up a lot as far as I'm concerned. You bring up Giorgio Moroder. So we always make this association of disco music as an American art form, but of course we know that it was Euro disco was a thing. A lot of that production value that Giorgio Moroder brings in sounds like you know what I've heard from uh, European disco rather than you know what I associate with American sounds, and even with American disco was the soundtrack for Saturday Night Fever comes to it, there's Latin influences as well. That Was it the MFSB, their piece KG is what's playing underneath the Hispanic couple at the dance competition towards the end? is not just any one thing and of course the the rock acts at the time you know the rolling stones and blondie who i think probably did it best had their five minutes of exploration of disco but just sort of wanting to address your point dan about racism and homophobia within the rock community and i think yes i mean also come at this uh disco demolition thing i came about it might have been in the alice eccles book hot stuff where i read this but there was discussion that a lot of people were coming to the disco demolition night with records that were not disco they were, could have been motown it's just anything that had a black artist they were bringing to destroy so this is not just hey blow up this musical art form that you don't like it's hey we're gonna blow up anything that we associate with disco they're all black musicians aren't they right we're gonna blow up diana ross and the supremes we're gonna blow up you know, the temptations records we're gonna blow up any of these stacks records because that we associate all that so yes there's there's racism from that perspective counterwise to that though at least at this end of the spectrum and this is not to decry that there's not been racism or homophobia at this end of the world because of course there has but we didn't have the culture there was no studio 54 we didn't have um not that this is like a exclusively a disco thing but you know, we didn't have soul train or anything like that disco music was just another form of music that was on the pop charts and we had bands like dave and the darrows uh which i think maybe in hindsight was more of a parody sort of band but this dave and the darrows which was a parody punk band had a song called death to disco Sure, it took a dive back in 75, but good old rock and roll is still alive. In 1978, there's a brand new way, and me and the boys, we just wanna say, death, death, death to disco. But they also had a really classy song called Nice Legs, Shame About the Face. So you know what we're dealing with here. Um, Well, didn't the Bee Gees, am I wrong that the Bee Gees are Australian? You're right and wrong. No, they're British. They emigrated to Australia as, I think, 10, 11, 11, 12-year-olds. And their first few singles, I mean, probably the most well-known song of those original Australian days was Spicks and Specks, which is sort of like a, a national anthem here nowadays we've named 
a TV rock music trivia show after that song, Specs and Specs. But this country was too small for them and they went back to England and all the great albums like Idea and Odessa were recorded over there. But they did record, I don't know, two or three albums worth over here. And I've even got an album here called Down Under Nuggets. And there's even one or two Bee Gees cuts on that. So they even identified, maybe not as garage rock by any stretch of the imagination, but even before they found their feet as Baroque pop, they were still doing something a little bit more poppy. There's a song from those early days. Uh, this might have been once I went to England called uh, Kitty Can, which is just one of the most brilliant pieces of sunshine pop from that era. So even if you don't like their particular brand of vocalizing and, and the over-the-top orchestration, they were doing orchestration. Odessa's full of it, but they still made really great drums, guitar, bass, keyboard, pop in the late, mid to late 60s. But um, Going back to what you were talking about, you know, about the whole thing with the uh, disco demolition and the racism. What I think is interesting is that, you know, a lot of what you were saying could also be said about the early evolution of rock and roll. Where or it all came of, from black people. Right, exactly. But I'm just saying the idea that, that it, it started to kind of pull in people from varying races and varying cultures. It started to gravitate around the thing. Like rock and roll and then disco as well where people like Morris are talking about the Latino influence there was that coming in from Miami the, the Latino element and then other cultures started bringing in their element but it was like you know like a gumbo like this goulash it just started coming together and a lot of people were just like no we can't be having this now you know you're starting to mix the colors and this is not good you know and I think with all great things that come to fruition in art when you actually start to mix the colors and you start to really bring in different elements together you started mentioning the chocolate and the peanut butter that's when all the great things really come out of it i'm sorry but this is what i find interesting about saturday night fever the movie and i know this is a movie podcast too which is that yes what you're saying is absolutely true but what's fascinating about saturday night fever is that you are watching characters in real time you're seeing them on the screen be racist say very racist things and they taunt the homosexual couple at one point you know tony kind of says like i just leave them alone why do we got to keep dumping on all these different people they dump on us, we dump on them, right? But at the same time, what are Tony and his gang and all the people at 2001 doing? But they're taking all of those elements of the cultures that they claim to despise, you know, black people, Latin and homosexuals, you know, the way they dress, the flowered silk shirts, the high heeled platform shoes. Come on, dude. They make it a symbol somehow of macho integrity. And this is the same thing that's, and I said earlier about, you know, we still have Tony Moneros today. You know, you look at a lot of like the magas. I've met these people again who would say the most racist stuff. And then when I go by their cars, what are they blasting? They're blasting hip hop. And they might do that so that they can like say the N-word along with Nas or something, which is not cool at all. But you know, they are taking all of these things that they claim to not like and these people that they claim to be not a part of, of their culture and then just taking it for themselves and saying, no, this is Italian culture. This is Bush Bushwick culture. You know, we like disco. We like to dance. We like hip-hop. One thing that really took me back again is the kitchen table scene where they're all sitting there eating. Because I'm thinking in my mind, holy shit, does this seem like an over-stereotype like, like today? 
but it really isn't because I mean, when you think about it, it's not. But I mean, for for young people that would see it today, they'd go, "Oh, come on, you can't be doing this!" Like, no, this is way too. Like, you guys are just pouring it on. This is just like a total serial type of Italian, you know. Like, because it's even comical at one point where the whole family starts smacking the shit out of each other, <laughs> and it's almost like a priest dude just like throwing around the table, right? And I'm just like, oh come on, and it made me laugh because I forgot about that, you know. Just a friend, Junior. Oh, shut up, will you? Hey. Where are you? Boom. And a shirt. Watch the yeah. shirt, stupid. Oh, come on. Yes. All right, come on. Manja, manja. Eat. Go ahead. Eat, eat. And then the old man feeling like he's been quipped, you know, so to speak. He's lost his, his manlyhood, you know, because he's lost his job. And he's like, I'm the one that's always bringing everything in here and blah, 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 you know. And Tony's just looking at this, trying to, he's part of the cycle, but he's trying to break the cycle, you know. He sees it doesn't work. Even his boss at the paint store, he knows he doesn't want to wind up at the paint store all his life. May I say just one more thing, too, before we stray too far, and I know this is going on forever. I, I'll try not to stray too many. But I did see the PG-13 version when it came out in theaters. I saw it at 14, like I told you, at the drive-in, the R-rated version. And then I was on a class field trip my freshman year in high school. And it was showing at a theater when we we did an overnight stay on this college campus. And they're like, hey, let's go sa- see Saturday Night Fever. It's PG. And, you know, I don't remember much about it. I do know they took out the gangbang scene. But, yeah, so I remember those scenes were taken out. And and I even kind of remember leaving the theater feeling feeling a little cool, you know, feeling a little like too proud of myself because those kids didn't know what I knew. They hadn't seen that. They hadn't heard the words, you know, most of them that I got to hear because I went to the drive-in with my sister a year prior because the, the PG was 1979. So that, that would have been when I was 15. Timmy mentioned about that whole scene with the family around the dinner and essentially that this film where it goes dark. The advertising for the film had the famous shot of Tony with his arms up in the air and Stephanie dancing around him, looking admiringly at him. So our perceptions of this film was, oh, this is a film about dancing at the disco. Why has it got an R certificate? What's this film about? The disco itself is a microcosm. It's Tony's kingdom. It's his fiefdom. That's where he rules. Every he's Tony is rock star. People worship him. Uh, so, oh, I can't believe I just kissed Al Pacino. Everyone worships him. The people who run the disco know who he is. The people who attend the disco know who he is. He's the only person who can dance by himself as a performance on the disco dance floor. And that's what makes him a rock star. You know, the music doesn't matter. Like outside that disco, if you listen to a rock band, that's the cult of personality. In the disco, Tony is the cult of personality. The music, the musicians, it only serves to worship him. He's the cult of personality. It's almost like a narcotic. 
you know, when Tony's in the disco in his element, it's like he gets high and he's at this point of where, you know, he's like the king on the top of the pyramid. And then when he comes down is when he's having to face reality, this addiction that when you're, you know, you're into the shit, you know, and everybody's all around you lapping it up because they're all addicted as well. Mm. You know, it's like this little kind of, like I say, like, almost like a, like a druggy element kind of thing to it. That whole disco venue, it, it's a bubble. I mean, yes, you're right. They're, right. they're getting, they're getting high. That's, you know, all the co- Cocaine, which we don't see in this film. You know, we hear stories about it in Studio 54, but effectively the cocaine, the music is the drug, whatever. And that's right. where he rules. Once he's out, he's, he goes to a working class home where his father is too proud and is out of work and takes it out on his family. And outside of the disco, people have real life problems that Tony doesn't give a shit about. Well, yeah. And, you know, listen, it's it's like I said earlier, like every community, every time period has its Tony Monero and any town in wherever you are in the globe has somebody that like for brief and maybe it was even you at some point in your life has this brief shining moment where you are the star of your environment and that environment may be a disco it might be a, a small town but you know whether you're the football star or the most beautiful girl in town for a very brief time in your life you're going to be worshipped and you're you're going to be soaking in it if you're lucky enough to be that person that has some extraordinary gift of beauty or talent or athletic athleticism, but that it doesn't last. No, I was thinking of that spring theme song, Glory Days. Actually, you know, there's a character like that played by, is it Dennis Quaid in Breaking Away? Breaking Away. Yeah. Yes. He, the high school guy who was a star of the football team and now he can't. He can't do bring himself to smoke because he was trying to keep fit. <laughs> trying to keep fit because the coach would get mad at him, and he's probably graduated. I wanted to also say something about Tony Minero. I mean, we've sort of already been saying this in a way, I guess, but Tony is one of those great '70s anti-heroes. You watch him, you don't really sympathize with them, but the film is told from their point of view. I mean, Tony is like another Travis Bickle, another Michael Corleone, a Harry Callahan, and a Randall Patrick. McMurphy. He rules his fiefdom and you know that he's an asshole. He's a narcissist. He's a bad friend. He doesn't pay attention to Bobby C, the character played by Barry Miller, to tragic consequences. As we've already gone and said, he treats women like shit, but never mind just it's the extreme circumstances of what happens with the characters Annette and Stephanie, but just how he patronizes that woman who says, I'd love to watch you dance. I, I, I just, just love it. Watching you dance. I mean, one of the one of his friends says, "Oh yeah, go give her the mercy fuck, give her the mercy dance." And then there's Fran Drescher who says, "Tell me, are you in good as bad as you are on that dance floor?" But he basically says, "No, you're not worthy of my time." So he treats women in the disco because that's his fiefdom. He looks after number one, even at home, with a possible exception of his devotion to maybe his grandmother. Although he does at one stage apologize to his mother for for yelling at her. He does slowly and to a limited degree, he does evolve a bit through the film. And again, it's it's I think a lot of it is is because of Stephanie. And I know a lot of critics, Stephanie's the weak link in the movie to a lot of critics and to audiences too. But I know Stephanie's, I know every character in this movie. I knew them in West Virginia and I know them in New York. I've gone and said Tony's a shit heel, but I've read a lot of critiques of this film from a 21st century perspective and people's problem with the film is that he's a shitheel and why are we watching this film? He's a bigot. He's a misogynist. He's a narcissist. We shouldn't be watching this film. And I'm thinking you missed the point. The film, like a lot of 70s 
anti-heroes is not saying, hey, let's worship this guy. This is a role model. They're saying quite the opposite, but it's making him front and foremost. We're not, this is not a Luke Skywalker, which came out, Star Wars coming out this, the same year with a false nostalgia. This is a film about a bunch of people who are not necessarily, they're not very nice. I'm going to say this. I feel like you guys are watching a different movie. I don't see Tony Monero as a fantastic person that I want to emulate, but I don't think he's a terrible guy. I really don't. I mean, okay. The thing is that, as you started to say, you can't look at it from a perspective of a different time. You know, you, you can. I mean, you can, but I don't know how accurate that viewpoint is. As we said, this is a kitchen sink type film. This is his life, right? This is a guy who has a very limited world, not a worldview, but also just a world. I mean, the only part of the world that he's ever seen are these like six blocks. He doesn't know anybody that's different, or, or if he does know anyone who's different, there's someone who he's been brought up to dislike or be afraid of. And the same thing with the other people. The person that he dislikes was also brought up to dislike him. You know, I mean, it's unfortunately the way it is sometimes. He's in a dysfunctional family. Cripes, who isn't, you know? But And there's a weird dynamic that's going on. And, and the mother is, is super religious, worshiping the older son who was a priest. So happy and so proud that they have a priest in their family. So anything else is going to be less than. So Tony grew up with, you know, he's less than. And so he's graduated from high school and now he's working in a paint store. He knows there's something better out there. He doesn't know what it is and he's not really sure how to get there. And he's never known anyone who's gotten out. I mean, his grandmother's living with them. She's lived there from the time she came from the old country. She was probably in that house. And all the other people on the block, same thing. I just feel like I don't think he's an evil guy. And I do think that you do see him try to ride herd over the, the his little gang by just like, leave him alone, you know, stop it, you know, stop acting like such a jerk. Yeah, women are coming up to him, asking him to dance, and he's making fun of them a little. It's like he does go out. He's trying really hard to be a benevolent tyrant when he goes out to the to the to dance floor to dance with some of the women who beg him to dance with him. But then he just like they can't really dance. And so he's like, oh, I'm going to find somebody who can dance or I'm just going to dance by myself because dancing is like the one time he gets to do what he wants to do. The rest of the time, he lives in a house where everybody gives him crap all the time. <laughs> you know, he has no money so he can get out. He has a job that's going to go nowhere. He doesn't have a fantastic grip on what's going on in the world. And this is it. This is his chance. And so if somebody's going to interfere and come and like dance crappy next to him, he's going to be like, listen, I got three hours to be cool and to have a nice time. Back the F off, you know, go away. There's a lot of stuff with him. And I just don't think he's an evil, evil guy. That's why I said he's an anti-hero. That's why he's like Travis Bickle or, or R.P. McMurphy. That's a classic 70s thing. Oh, no, sorry, because there's oh. recently been a big thing in terms of censorship when it comes to the French connection. That was a big thing recently. 
because, I mean, before Friedkin passed, apparently they showed the French Connection on the Criterion Channel and it took out a, a part. Disney owns it. So they had removed from the digital copies a very small segment in which Popeye Doyle says the N-word. I mean, that movie's fantastic to watch. And he's a complete a-hole. I mean, that guy is a terrible guy and he's probably a terrible cop. But he's also, he's really dynamic. He's really charismatic. Gene Hackman hits it out of the park. But, he, you know, the fact that they took that line out was a big deal. Deal. And they did it without asking permission of Friedkin or anyone else. It was just Disney. I own it now. I'm going to take it out. So there was a run on the French connection in like on Amazon, on eBay. Copies were selling for like $140 on the, for a Blu-ray. It was crazy. So I have a big problem with this sort of looking back on something with different eyes. I 100% agree with that. And I'm not saying that these characteristics ought to have him condemned or we shouldn't be watching this from quite the opposite. Right. Oh, no, no. But that's not to deny, though, he does have these characteristics. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, in fact, I was trying to make the point earlier that these people who've been saying we shouldn't be watching these films because that's what they're like and and that's just wrong and that's not very nice. No, it's a film about people who are like that and people are still like that, as Dan's been pointing out through a, a lot of the show. They're like that and we can't be erasing this history. But it, it is undeniable that that's what Tony is and he is an anti-hero in the classic 70s tradition. Girl, two children. They're both in their young 20s. And I realized some time ago, uh, when I tried to show my daughter, who was then nine years old, I tried to show her The Bad News Bears, which was a favorite 1970s movie of mine. And the anti-heroes are children. And she did not like it at all. And I was really surprised. She's like, these kids are mean. You know, these kids are rude. And, you know, because she had grown up in a culture at that point of, you know, Disney Channel, which is showing, you know, there's no smart mouth kids on the Disney not really. You know, anybody on the Disney Channel that, that is smartass will eventually learn their lesson and become nice within a half an hour. But the whole thing of trying to explain anti-hero to a kid who didn't grow up at that time, or at least in some area of that, that's hard to explain. And, you know, one of the things I did in preparation for being on this show was I just randomly chose, I was looking at other podcasts that discussed Saturday Night Fever, and I came across, I won't mention its name, because I don't want to throw any fellow podcasters under the bus, but there was a very famous podcast, or it seems very popular podcast, hosted by a dude who's like, I think on ESPN, he's an ESPN sports commentator, but he also does a cultural podcast. And so he does this podcast where sort of like three dudes, three bros talking about film, and they talk about Saturday Night Fever. And their thing wasn't just about the aspects of racism or depictions of misogyny or what have you. I, I think in some ways that didn't really matter.
matter to them. What mattered more to them was the fact that it's like, you know, how come Tony doesn't win the big dance contest at the end? And my kids grew up with that too. The idea that when you go to a movie, I don't want to see Tony lose to the Puerto Rican couple. I don't even want to see Rocky have just a mere moral victory against Apollo Creed. I want clear results. And I want to know that Tony deserved to win. The Dude Bro podcast was like, you know, that dance they did at the very end with when it's Tony and Stephanie, and they're just kind of doing this slow cha-cha through love. It's lame. Why would Tony do this dance when he knows he's a much better dancer than this? And somebody even brought up, why didn't he ask Fran Drescher to be his partner? She's a good dancer. Or Ned, if he really wanted to win the contest, why did he look outside of the usual array of women? And it's like, you don't get it. When Tony met Stephanie, it wasn't really about dancing. The prize, I think, is $500, which was a lot in the 70s and Bushwick and so forth. But it's not going to change your life. You know, you're not going to quit your job at the paint store because you won $500 in the dance contest. What Tony was really about was he saw, I think, with Stephanie, an opportunity to get out of his world. At first, he has to learn from her. He uses her as something of a mentor. It's why he didn't walk out on her when she's talking about Eric Clapton and, and Laurence Olivier. And then he finds out later she's full of shit. You know, most of these people she's bragging about, they don't know her from Adam. Joan Namath is not inviting Stephanie to coffee. She's just making that up to impress people. And again, we know all we all know people about that of name dropping their supposed famous friends. You find out it's all a sham. They're just they just want to do that. But I think the reason why the the dance at the end, I think it's deliberately kind of lame. I do think that you know Stephanie Tony is falling in love with Stephanie, and Stephanie's kind of falling for Tony, whether she likes it or not. You don't see them practicing their dancing that much after a certain point in the movie. You don't see them in the studio. They might be talking in the studio, but you never see them doing the steps that Tony and Annette were doing earlier. When Tony was saying to Annette, if you want to be a good dancer, you've got to be here every day. You can't be late. You have to be disciplined. They lose that discipline, both Tony and Stephanie, because it becomes something about more important than, am I going to win the $500? It doesn't matter to Tony by the end. You know, the Puerto Rican couple clearly deserves to win. You know, the black couple that's dancing to cool in the gang, get down with the genie. They could have an argument to have won too, but certainly not the hometown favorites, Tony and Stephanie. And that's the point of the movie. But that's hard for current audiences to accept that there is such a thing as a moral victory, that winning a big prize at the very end, it's not going to really change your life and it really shouldn't matter to the movie. I agree with Dan 100%. And what I was going to say was that in the beginning, Tony has to give up. He ha- he's like a peacock. He just has to peacock the whole time when he's out there on the floor. And what he gets, the reaffirmation from everybody around him, reinforces his own security. But by the end, he's just like, I know what I do. I don't have to show anybody anymore. I know I can beat all these people if I wanted to, but I don't. I don't have to. It's like, you know, he knows who he is and she knows who she is and they know what they mean to each other, which is more important than anything that they could get from anybody else in the dan- on the dance floor. You know, it's like Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee doesn't have to go out and beat everybody up. He knows what he can do. And what's more important is what he knows what he means to himself instead of what he has to show who he is to everybody else. Morris, what you brought up earlier some time ago, I think it's a it's an interesting thing to talk about, which is that, yeah, John Abelson, you know, had just won the Oscar for directing Rocky. He was sacked. He'd been nominated. Uh, no, and- he won. He won. No, no, he won the award, but he didn't win the award until after John Badham had already taken over. Yes. Yeah. But the point was he was Oscar nominated. Rocky was 
was a huge hit at that point. So it made sense. It's like, let's get the hot director. Here's the funny thing is that Avildsen at that point was known for these gritty street level movies. You know, he did Joe with Norman Wexler, wrote that, you know, and, and later wrote Saturday Night Fever. Uh, but then he did, you know, Save the Tiger and even Rocky. There's a people think of Rocky as the big boxing movie, but there's a lot of scenes in there that also have that 70s gritty feel, you know, where he's just walking down the street and Rocky's working as a muscle man for the local mobsters and everything. So yeah, you know, Avildsen was Mr. Grit, but at least according to reports, he was sacked because he wanted to make it more upbeat. For all I know, he did want Tony and Stephanie to win that. I don't know what he wanted to do, but he wanted it happier and sunnier and more like we. the audiences cheered for Rocky when he ran up those steps. We want people cheering for Tony, you know, at the 2001. And meanwhile, John Badham, I don't know if you've looked at his IMDb, I'm sure you have, but he'd only done one other feature to that point. He'd done a lot of television, but he did this movie called Bingo Long and His Traveling All-Stars. You know, there's definitely some grit and there's definitely some drama in that, but it's still in a lot of ways a very much more lightweight movie. You know, it's funny. It's got Richard Pryor in it and, and it's it's a very entertaining and sort of more lightweight movie in some ways. So Avildsen wants to go light. They sack him. I mean, they bring in Bad him, who had only, you know, whose only feature was kind of light. You know, it's a baseball, it's outside, it's bright sunshine and everything. And then Avildsen keeps all the grit. He keeps all the darkness and the rape scenes and the couple, you know, losing at the end. And it's like, you know, and Avildsen wouldn't really make a movie like that again. He had a, a you know, pretty interesting career after that. Nothing to that heights, but he did do like Blue Thunder and that uh, Stakeout, the Stakeout movies. So, you know, he was capable of light and airy as much as anybody. Even though I heard that there was some argument on the set about John Avildsen wanting to make this not quite as dark in tone, but I think that the the final straw with him saying, no, he's got to go. Robert Stigwood was the guy who was financing this film. It was basically just supposed to be a B movie. He put in three and a half million dollars of his own money to getting this film made, and it was going to be a vehicle for his boys, the Bee Gees. And when John Avildsen said, I don't want that Bee Gees shit in my movie, and Robert Stigwood said, uh, no, go away. You're no longer the director of this film. This is going to be a vehicle for uh, my three singing birds from Britain via Australia. They're going to be the music of this film. They're going to be the soundtrack, or at least part of the soundtrack of this film. And they'd already sort of like, as you said before, Dan, that they'd already gone and made a couple of albums that had been moving in that disco direction. And it just seemed like a natural fit. We're going to put this in. And of course, the album is its own thing. Even people who've never seen the film or maybe don't care for the film own a copy of the soundtrack of that film. So it proved to be a very wise business move as well, arguably a good artistic move to keep their music in the film. So that's potentially the biggest reason why John Avildsen was sacked. You don't piss off the financier and the producer of uh, of the film. Mm. I can also tell you personally from having worked with a number of directors who, you know, suddenly hit the peaks of their fame and fortune in the middle of a job. Sometimes they become not the most pleasant people. Sometimes they indulge in behavior that does not uh, serve to their credit. Hey, Mr. Fusco. Look, I need the afternoon off. Sam's out, Harold's sick. Here, take me. But, but I got him, Mr. Fusco. Sorry, Tony. Well, look, all I'm asking for is one afternoon off. I've been here almost eight months. I didn't miss a day yet. Not today, Tony. Oh, come on, Mr. Fusco. Some of those farts, they, they miss three, four days at a time. You don't say nothing to them. Hey, cool off. Look, I got to have the afternoon off. I'm taking it. You do, you're fired. I'm doing it. Then you're 
fired. Then fuck you, asshole. Sort of alluded to this at the beginning of the show that there's another film that could take out a couple of words. The same description would fit for it. So I bet, Tim, maybe you, Kerry, will pick what this film is. This is a film that came after Saturday Night Fever, but its origins are about five years before or maybe four years before in a great classic rock album. So the description that I would give, a young working class man hates his work and his family life and lives for the one night of the week that he can go dancing with his friends. As the story goes on, he realizes that his friends and all that he believed in are not quite up to scratch. What's the film? Urban Cowboy? No, that came Quadra- afterwards. Yeah. Quadrophenia? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Quadrophenia. Oh. Quadrophenia. Well, no, but, I, I, but I was going to say, from what Kerry was saying, there is kind of a bridge between Saturday Night Fever and Urban Cowboy, because Urban Cowboy is pretty much a lot of the same story. Yeah, there's some similarities, definitely. Was that a case, though, of John Travolta's, hey, we know another film, we'll just do country and western instead of disco? I don't think it's like a repeat of it or anything, but I do think that I mean, the fact that he could dance obviously helped him get that role and everything. And he's a big star, but it does have some similarities. I mean, I I see similarities in this one and I can see Urban Cowboy, but I can also see American Gigolo a few years later. One of the things I kept seeing, like when Travolta is getting dressed to go out to the disco after he's gotten home from the paint store, you know, right, and he's, like Richard Gere. Yeah, he's just like Richard Gere getting ready, and Richard Gere lays out all the clothes, and he's dancing, get music on, and and he's like trying putting the tie with the shirt, and he's trying to figure out what to wear, and he's dancing, and he's this you know attractive guy trying to figure out what he's gonna wear, and John Travolta is doing the the same thing here where he's like he's putting on his crucifix and he's putting on his 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 medals you know his saint christopher or whoever it was and and then he's doing the quaff and you know putting on a little cologne and he's dancing around in his black underpants and you know <laughs> getting ready to go to church right and he even covers when he goes to dinner he takes an entire white sheet and puts it around him so he won't get any sauce on that silk shirt that's why i was suggesting before that tony Minero might be like Vinny Barbarino after he's left school because that whole line about we just washed the hair yeah. you know I work on my hair a long time and you, and you hit it he hits my hair and that's Vinny Barbarino you gotta you can't <laughs> deny that and you know there's one scene I always wanted to see in Saturday Night Live I mean Saturday Night Live Saturday Night Fever where you know Tony and his boys are walking down the street after you know the disco that's out and all of a sudden they run into the Warriors oh. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say the sharks. They've got their own gang. Like, you know, it's, they, they've got their own definitive neighborhood clique. I don't know if you've ever read the Mad Magazine parody of Saturday Night Fever. I believe it was called Saturday Night Feeble. And, and <laughs> I remember, I, I have it. I, I have the magazine. But there's one panel where it's Tony and Stephanie at the White Castle when the guys are jumping up on the table. Hey, don't you never chew, Tony. Don't you never chew. Hey, look, when my mother dies, I'll give you the job, right? You know what's going on in your throat, man. Big tongue a hamburger, you know? Big gobs like dog food, dog friskies, doggy yummies. You know something, Joey? He's gonna turn into a dog. No, 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 no,
And mm-hmm. she says something to him like, you know, how can you hang out with a bunch of animalistic hoodlums like this? And he says, well, you know, it's just temporary, but I sure wouldn't want to be on a television series with guys like that. You know, it was a total <laughs> Welcome Back Cotter reference. <laughs> At the very end, the last panel of Saturday Night Feeble is a drawing of, of Travolta with Olivia Newton-John. And he's saying like, if Grease is a big hit, I can ditch the Cotter gang forever. Which was true. <laughs> Which was true. This film was only made just while biding time, while waiting to get onto Greece, because Greece was what he had this three picture deal, what he was signed yeah, with up for. Stigwood. It was with Stigwood, that's right. And mm-hmm. uh, they were just waiting for Olivia Newton John to be available. So they said, right, well, we might as well put him in this B movie, which. Do you remember the third movie in that deal? The third no, movie actually, in that contract? What, was that, hang on, was that the one with Lily Tomlin? Yes. Moment to moment. Moment, <laughs> moment, moment by moment. By moment. Moment by moment. He played yeah. a character named Strip. So throughout the movie, she's going, Strip, Strip. And you expect him to start taking off his clothes. Oh, God. I'm so glad I've never seen it. That red hot chemistry between uh, Lily Tomlin and John Travolta just didn't ignite. I'm thinking of now, like a lot of times when I watch films, it starts to come into my mind where I'm thinking, this would be a good double bill with that. Like there's elements when you start watching something, it always automatically something pops up into my head. And I'm thinking, this might sound a little odd, but a really good double bill with Saturday Fever to me would be Friedkin's Cruising. Oh. Because it's almost like around the same time. Yeah. And another portrait of New York where there's this closed bubble of, and it's just this whole thing about this community, like, you know, that, and now people outside would look at cruising today and just go, oh, dude, this is way too stereotypical or this is way too homophobic or hateful or whatever or, you know, or overly reinforced. And it's not. It's like, that's what it was. No, there was a lot of protests by gay community, by the gay community at that time of its release. They were picketing in front. It- sure they were, but I'm saying Freakin didn't make a lot of stuff up out of his head. He went to a lot of those bars and stuff. Like, I mean, he did research. He wasn't, he, you know, he just didn't say, oh, I think they do this. I think they do that. No, he, he, he wouldn't. By the time I arrived in New York City, I mean, I'm not gay, uh, but so I wouldn't go have any reason to go to those bars. But by the time I got there in 86, that environment was pretty much done with. Like the the next phase of the Rudy Giuliani, you know, New York City as Disney Disneyland and for tourists, that was totally happening. What I mean about the double bill for me is just like the disco is like Studio 54 and there was, uh, what was that called? Apollo, uh, shit, now in New York. It was like kind of like a swingers bar that was a disco kind of swingers thing. But anyway, the whole thing about the whole 70s kind of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, the hedonism, you know what I mean? Like yeah, that's yeah. Where, where I can really see it in, in cruising and I really see it in Saturday Night Live where it was just kind of like everything was kind of thrown to the wind. AIDS crashed that whole scene too. All that. Yep, exactly. Well, it's interesting because my double feature would be Saturday Night Fever and Woogie Nights. I really see that, you know, and there's that whole scene where Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley and Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman are yeah. in the clothing store and they're buying the Italian shirt. That shirt is like John Travolta's shirt that he wears the first night he goes to Odyssey there. <laughs> Makes me laugh. It's like, well, it's not the same shirt, but it's so close, you know? And they were like, it's it's real Italian polyester, you know? I would like to propose a triple feature, starting off with West Side Story from 1961. Second, Mean Streets. Yep. Third, final movie, Saturday Night Fever. Because it's really that plus that equals that. I've already gone and nominated my double feature of this with Quadrophenia that completely mm. that completely works for me but yeah we could have a, a whole festival of this anyone out there who wants to allow see here uh, cheaper screening rates we'll put the festival on <laughs> 
Gary, what you were talking about with Boogie Night, it's this whole thing where, you know, Dirk Diggler, it's about what he is to everybody else, not what he is to himself. And in the end, it's him kind of coming to terms of what who he is to himself. The same way with Tony Monero, same thing, you know? I mean, where he's on the floor in the beginning, it's all about what he is to everybody else. It's not about what he is to himself. And that's where the conundrum lies, where he has to run through the whole film to kind of do that hero's quest and self-discovery. And, and, and it's the same thing with Boogie Night. Well, it's also like the little bubble. They all live in this bubble. They don't really know a lot of other people it seems you know um it's just all other porn actors maybe boogie nights would then work if you're talking about the bubble and maybe even saturday night fever to an extent the community the bubble one flew over the cuckoo's nest because even though these people they're saying right we're happy to be here randall patrick mcmurphy's the only one who's committed all the rest they say yeah we can go at any time mac but we choose to stay here they don't say this is our community but effectively they say this is where we're comfortable we're here because this is what we can right. deal with we can't deal with what's on the outside and to an extent Tony Manero, even though he's saying yeah I'm not going to dance forever but really the disco where he's worshipped that's not his community that's his fiefdom it's only good until you're sat- you know as long as you're satisfied within the wall right you know, it's, once you start getting the inkling of dissatisfaction then that's when the walls start to crack, when you realize that you're in a cage, you're not really in a, in a kingdom. Yeah. yeah, but you see, again, I know Tony Maneros. I've known them my whole life, and I still do, where it's exactly what Morris was just saying, which is the old high school football star, the old beauty queen. They didn't leave my hometown. Because that's where they had that people will still bring up the fact that, you know, I remember that time you won that game or, or, you know, gee, you know, you were once the prettiest girl in school. It's comfortable for them. And so our neighborhoods, we choose comfort. Even, you know, I don't know about you if you've ever lived like in a city itself. But, you know, I when I lived in New York City, I thought, well, I'm just going to be going all over the map and all these places and all this stuff. But what I realized is like, you know what, I'm kind of staying in the same six block area myself. When I was down in the East Village, I hung out in East Village places. I did my shop. I went to movies there, rented movies. I wasn't going up to, you know, Upper East Side or, or, or Chinatown. Why would I? I didn't even go to Brooklyn at that time. No, no I agree entirely. Like, I lived in Seoul for 18 years, and I just basically lived a large portion just in my community, in my, my district of Seoul, where I lived. It was just, you know, I mean, I sure I ventured out and went to other places, but I spent the majority of it just in, you know, within my, you know, five-mile radius where I live. Yeah, but by moving to Seoul, you'd moved a long way out of your community in Brantford. You'd gone to another part of the world, so no one's going to tell you yeah. that you haven't moved out of a community. You move, you move from one to a completely different community. That's a fucking shithole. You know that a fucking shithole. God damn it, friends, the assholes I hang out with. I can't believe them sometimes. You know that. Everybody's got to dump on somebody, right? Of course. I mean, everybody, everybody can't do it straight, right? My my pa goes to work, he gets dumped on, so he comes home and he dumps on my mother, right? Of course, right? We've been speaking a long time. I've got other things I wanted to bring up, but we should probably bring this to a close sooner than later. So just one final go around the table. Any final points about the music, the film, a personal experience, anything you want to bring up? Dan, you start. Any final thoughts about the, the whole Saturday Night Fever experience? Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, because I was, I think I was the one that initially proposed this movie as the topic of our discussion tonight. You know, one of the reasons it occurred to me that it would be a good 
good one for a movie music podcast like this one is it because music is so essential to the movie not just in terms of the disco scenes the 2001 scenes and the music that tony's dancing to and throughout the movie you know you see another scene somebody brought up disco duck you know there's even that you see a scene in the movie where there's like a bunch of a class of elderly or or senior dancers learning how to disco through disco duck and the music itself is very important to the structure and the tone of the movie but what stigwood i think could have possibly arguably pioneered with Saturday Night Fever. He'd done it a little bit with the earlier movies he had produced. Uh, he had done the movie version of Jesus Christ Superstar. He was the producer of that. But more notably, he was the producer on Tommy. And Tommy, the movie, had its soundtrack distributed, I believe, on RSO Records. Or no, it was Poly- Polygram. It was, it, it was distributed. I remember that red label, right? Uh, but I think they had a deal maybe with RSO. I can't tell you. But Stigwood figured out before a lot of people did that the soundtrack could sell the movie and then the movie could sell the soundtrack. And it just becomes a sort of circle of self-promotion. You know, Saturday Night Fever, I did some research. It stayed at number one on the Billboard album charts for 24 consecutive weeks. That's about six months that that was the album that was being purchased more than any other. And this was a time that Fleetwood Mac's Rumors was still selling huge. Meatloaf's album, uh, Bad Out of Hell, had just come out and would become a huge seller. But out of all of those big acts, you know, Billy Joel, The Stranger, I think, came out in 77, but it was the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack album, a double album that was the biggest seller of 1977. And of course, you know, it held the record for a while as the biggest selling album of all time. And then where I'm going with this too, is that this set a pattern. I know there were some other soundtrack albums that had sold well prior to Saturday Night Fever. You know, The Graduate sold well. My folks had that one, Simon and Garfunkel. And musicals like Sound of Music or West Side Story, I think was the number one album of 1961. So it wasn't that it was unprecedented, but what Stigwood did was take it to a new level with Saturday Night Fever. And from that, you really had the 1980s boom, especially once MTV hit. You had all of those movies that's like we, we got to have a number one single in our movie. So, and so we can have a soundtrack album. It's Flashdance or Footloose or Fame. We've got to have an album to go with the movie. It's all one big circle. And we can make a music video of the Pointer Sisters and that will promote Beverly Hills Cop. It was all a big circle. And I think really you could argue and, and, and your listeners are welcome to prove me wrong that Stigwood got there really before anybody else. He saw it. I would argue that even though he wasn't the first to do it, that he was certainly a big pioneer in the whole idea of the jukebox musical because in a few years before there would have been out of England there would have been that'll be the day which we got to do at some stage and there was also American Graffiti which was huge in its time what you're talking about there is something different Dan I I, I get that about the whole marketing thing but I'm sort of adding to that the whole idea the whole concept of the jukebox musical because the 80s the big chill the soundtrack for TV shows like the tour of duty go back even further you look at the 50s like for example rock around the clock you know or like there was a lot of musical based films that had so many different artists the girl can't help it right exactly. but i don't think the rock around the clock soundtrack was like a bit albums weren't really huge in the 50s it was the age of the singles then i, I think but what sure. tim's pointing out is just the whole concept of using multiple oh, musicians sure. and, and making that be the soundtrack yeah. rather than having a, a miklos roger do a score that would be completely inappropriate right uh, or the beatles with the, their movies and so right, forth right terry any final thoughts from you 
Well, I mean, I, I had seen this movie and I had not rewatched it in quite a number of years, you know, so it, it was actually, it was nice to see it again, you know, and remember what, even though I didn't see it in the theater, I remember the huge impact that it had, you know, because it was, the, the songs were everywhere on, if you watched regular, you know, sitcoms on TV, they would be making fun of it in a way. There were sort of satires of it and stuff like that. So you knew about it sort of vicariously through these other <laughs> means sometimes. So yeah, it was a big deal, huge for Travolta, of course, and, and a big deal for the the Bee Gees. And I mean, people that I knew anyway, the disco Bee Gees or the, that type of music for the Bee Gees, the more romantic kind of music was the first they'd ever heard of them. Like they didn't know the other stuff. And in fact, people that were my age really didn't. I did because I had that album and I used to listen to it all the time. So it, it brought them to the fore, you know, which is kind of nice. And I like them. I like them. I mean, I, at the time, as I said, I was like, just go, oh no, that's terrible, you know, but I really like them now, you know, and. <laughs> I think the first time I ever heard the Bee Gees was being a little kid and my uncle having a 45 of uh, to love somebody. Great song. Great song. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, you know what? The, the whole thing is like, I guess like you guys, I was not really a disco fan. And yet, for some reason, I end up in my record collection with a copy of the Thank God It's Friday soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> because, well, I mean, like, I think like every other you know, boy of my age, we all had a crush on Donna Summer and she could sing. She really could sing. I think hot I was uh, hot. Yeah, she was hot stuff. Hot uh, stuff. Yeah. But, uh, and that song, I think long after disco, Disco music in the top 40 sense. I'm not talking about the underground sense, but long after disco music had run its course, I think that her song and uh, Giorgio Moroder's arrangement or writing of uh, I Feel Love, the ripples of that were still being felt for years after disco yeah. had, had died. Oh, that yeah. was truly innovative. Tim, do you reckon, I, I think I vaguely heard somewhere that David Bowie was saying after hearing I Feel Love that that was going to change everything. Did you know anything about it? Was it David Bowie? I'm sure someone of his ilk had gone and said something to that effect. I think I think it was either Bowie or Warhol. Like, it was a whole Studio 54 thing. Right. Because, you know, like I think, yeah, you know, if there was a soundtrack for the first half of the 80s, I think it was I Feel Love. Because that was, you know, like you said, like the whole thing that propelled the half of the 80s. I mean, the whole New York nightclub scene, that song in itself to me was just like big. It's a, it's a revelation. It really is. So, but I Feel Love was recorded in Germany as well. That's where Donna Summer was at the time. You know, it was a chance meeting with Giorgio Moroder. So once again, that, that, that Euro disco sound is completely different to the American disco sound. Mm -hmm. right. Well, and I think everybody was paying attention to craft work. I was about to say, I was bringing bring up craft work because you can totally hear it. Well, and then Bowie was in Berlin, I think, maybe still at the, mm -hmm. in those years. I don't right. know. Right. Yes, he, he was. Yes. Yes, you're right. No, I was just going to say that it's incredible now looking back at 
within the five-year range of when this film came out, everyone said at the time it was a cultural phenomenon. But still, even now, looking back over 50 years now, almost, it's like it's still, people can still see that film and still, it still resonates like big time. You know, there's not a lot. I mean, like, sure, like, there's that book that came out. What was it? Uh, Raging Bulls and Easy Riders. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic book, and I highly recommend everybody read it. Peter Biskind. It yeah. just said that, you know, the 70s were such a perfect storm of film that everything that came out afterwards had such a high bar that it was almost impossible. I mean, the 80s were fantastic as well in terms of film, but then, you know, but the 70s, it was just like, they set so many cultural landmarks, so many cultural flagpoles, like, you know, Apocalypse Now, Jaws, The Exorcist, Saturday Night Fever. I mean, it's just one of those films that you can't really say, it's not so much a film as it is an experience, I guess. That leads me to probably the final point I wanted to bring up that, I mean, as we've gone and said, the soundtrack itself had a life unto its own. Unlike other soundtrack albums, it didn't just have a picture that was a replication of the poster. It had a combination of John Travolta's stance, but instead of Karen Lynn Gormley being on the front cover, they had the Bee Gees. This was like, John Travolta might be star of the film, but we're the stars of this record. That was its own thing. And that album cover, it influenced a whole lot of other album covers and indeed records themselves. So there was like... One in particular, Sesame Street Fever. That's the one I was going to bring up. I actually own <laughs> I own a copy of Sesame Street Fever, which had a sequel called Sesame Disco. I own both of them. You have not lived until you've heard Cookie Monster sing, Me lost me cookie at the disco. Me lost me cookie at the disco. Me lost me cookie in the boogie music. Me lost me cookie at the disco. Me want it back. Me want it back again. And Tim, I don't know about you, but I've often wondered about Bert because when he's singing Doing the Pigeon, I don't know what he's real. He's not talking about a dance. So, you know, it's it's a little bit too sus. But there was there was also albums. I remember, I mean, I never owned a copy of this, but at my school, people were talking about an album called Chassidisco Fever, which was basically Jewish prayers set to a disco beat. And it's the antithesis. You can't oh imagine God. any of these people having seen the film. I can't imagine anyone who I went to school with having had an interest in seeing it. And yet the Shema Yisrael, Adoshem Elokeinu, Adoshem Echad is being put to a disco beat. But when you're talking about, you know, how the the variations and all the influence, it's incredible how viral that album is, too, because there's, like, indie versions of Saturday Night Fever. There's, like, all variations of culture took from that film and took from the album and did their own mock-up. No, I wouldn't say mock-up, but it was just their interpretation with their own spice on it. And like we were talking about the the Latin, the Latin influence in disco and all the different cultural other influences came into disco. Well, same thing. But I'm saying specifically with that album, I know there was a Hindi version. There's like a Portuguese uh, Saturday Fever album. There was uh, all Arthur Fiedler. 
Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Saturday the Night Boston Fiedler. Pops. Yes. Saturday Night Fiedler, it was called. Ethel Merman had a disco album. There's no business. I remember there's someone called Miko who went and did yes, a disco Star version Wars. of the Star Wars right. music. And that would was not have been possible without Saturday Night Fever. And if I remember correctly, Miko was on the RSO label. So Robert Stigwood was saying, right, how can I keep making money? How can I yeah. milk this? How can I milk this dry? But the interesting thing is all these spin-offs were all G-rated, which have nothing to do at all with the film. The music was its own thing. The film right. was one yeah. thing. The music was its own thing. It wasn't just a nice little bit of paraphernalia that went along with the film like so many other films. You know, you wouldn't be talking nowadays about the little plastic cutouts or the Luke Skywalker dolls as being its own thing. They're not. They're paraphernalia associated with Star Wars. Grease, but the Saturday Grease Night Fever soundtrack is its own well. thing. Grease was the same thing as well because, I mean, the Grease album stood alone from the film. Huge. Huge that was album. gigantic. The movie was huge, too. I saw that well, opening weekend. I went to that one. But it's funny, too, that you bring up Star Wars, and I know we're trying to end this darn thing. But, you know, <laughs> Star Wars and Saturday Night Fever did come out in the same year. And as much as we're talking about the gritty 1970s sort of kitchen sink drama stuff, Star Wars at the same time was bigger than Saturday Night Fever, was bigger than anything, and helped kind of kill the 1970s gritty kitchen sink kind of drama. The 70s started in 67 or 68, once the Hayes Code was kicked out to the curb, and it ends in 1977, once Star Wars is a thing. I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of film scholars out there who probably say, no, that's a common myth, and there's a lot of still gritty films yet to come, and that's true. Yeah, um, there are. Probably, actually, well, so one other film which probably came out the same year, which I didn't think about, we want to make as a good double bill with Saturday Night Fever, even though it's only partly set in a disco, is looking for Mr. Goodbar. Oh, God. Another dystopic, <laughs> gritty film. I keep thinking about Airplane. I keep thinking about that scene in Airplane. <laughs> and he right. throws the, <laughs> and it comes throws the jacket, back. comes back in his face. Yeah. <laughs> Can you come to me on a summer breeze? Keep me warm in your love, then you softly leave. And it's me you need to Look, really, evidently, we could go on for another two hours about this sort of thing. I really do have a lot more notes, but we have to end this somewhere. So at this stage, I want to say, Dan, thank you so much, not only for suggesting this film, because I'm not sure that we would have come to it, but really, thank you very much for bringing so much fantastic conversation uh, to this thank episode you. Can of the I show. Do a, can I just plug one more time, Let's Talk 10? Go for it. Yep, please. It, Let's Talk 10, T-E-N, not the numbers, but the T-E-N, is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or you could go to my website let's talk 10 podcast.buzzsprout.com if you want to hear more from the time of this recording what's the next episode due out what do you got coming up okay well the, the next episode which is dropping Monday is a really fun one it's with a prop master friend of mine named Kevin Ladson who is the third black person to have been a prop master in my union he started in 86 and the first two guys were his mentors he had mentors that had worked in black exploitation in the 70s, had done all those like shaft and stuff like that. And when Kevin came along, they took him under his wing. It's like, we need more black people doing this. And so Kevin became a prop master. And he and I have always, for the past, you know, 36 years, he and I have been kind of competing for the same jobs sometimes. Um, certainly, you know, I wasn't going to get Spike Lee jobs. He, he's 
he's done a lot of Spike Lee stuff. But we grew up in pretty much the same era. So our topic for the episode that's dropped by the time this one will drop is movies we loved as kids. And so that encompasses not only the stuff like Disney or George Powell puppetoons, but included some of the you know more grown up stuff like Tommy or Paper Moon. It's a really fun episode. He's hilarious. And we just have really, I think, good chemistry. I really, I, another thing I could have talked for like four hours with this guy. So I, I think if people want to learn a little bit of that era and our particular takes on it, you certainly check that one out. It's a lot of fun and you'll get some laughs too. I'm looking forward to that one. I've been really enjoying the podcast, not wanting to piss I appreciate pocket, it. but yeah, really a lot. It, it is a lot of fun. You have good conversations with you. Well, thank you for doing this show too. I mean, your show and, and, and so many of the others, you know, I listen to them. I do a lot of commuting. I listen and I try to sort of pick up on what I think works and it's like well if, if it's really good I'm going to steal it you know or I'm going to adapt it to my style and good. certainly happy with that and you're showing me what works and, and that I could use so thank you for your contribution to popular culture and its consciousness our pleasure thank you, thank you for the time to come on the show like this has been great we really appreciate it yeah definitely yeah. let's talk about what's happening next month we're going to be talking about five technically but you could argue six films in the one episode, I've invited the author of a new book called Act Naturally. His name is Steve Matteo, and he's written this book, Act Naturally, about the films of the Beatles. And the book is putting their films in historical context, political context, what else is going on at the time in the music charts, what else is going on at the time in cinema. You've mentioned a number of times in this episode, Terry, about kitchen sink dramas, and so kitchen sink dramas were a big thing when the Beatles released Hard Day's Night. So he talks a lot about that in his book, a uh, really fascinating book. So we're going to be talking about his book, Act Naturally, and about the Beatles as cinema phenomenon, as opposed to being just a you know, great musical phenomenon, uh, which has been done on millions of other podcasts. So it'll be nice to take a different type of look at the Beatles. So the book, is, as I said, is called Act Naturally. So yes, yeah, Steve will be on the show next month to talk about uh, uh, the Beatles in cinema. I'm not sure whether you guys are planning on watching all five of the Beatles original films plus all 20,000 hours of Get Back, but I'm sure we'll have a, a fascinating conversation. And my cat Harpo is saying to me, time to eat. So I guess we better kill this. Thank you once again for a wonderful disco episode. Boogie, boogie, boogie. And go out and watch Saturday Night Fever. I'm sure it's on any number of the streaming services. And also try to catch Thank God It's Friday, which is the film that as a 14-year-old, I thought Saturday Night Fever was going to be. It's a fun film and shouldn't be derided. It's worthy of your time. So until next month, look after each other. Be nice to each other. Watch some films. Go out dancing. You know you want to. So all the best until next month. Cheers. 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 New York Times effect on man Hey, I'd rather away The earth of you staying alive Staying alive Every city breaking and everybody shaking And we're staying alive Staying alive Ha, 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 ha Staying alive Staying alive Ha, 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 ha Staying alive Well, let's Yeah.
understand the New York Times effect on me When your brother awake, your mother's staying alive, staying alive Feels that you're breaking and now everybody's shaking and we're staying alive, staying alive It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.